Hey everybody, it's Mikey D. Welcome to my stoop. It feels like yesterday when we roamed this lost world. A little town amidst a giant city. Quiet, crazy, wild, and sometimes lonely. Never boring, yet at times it was. It was a place where characters roamed and lived bizarre tales. Yet these were not works of mythology, and it's all tattooed on my mind. So sit back, and let me tell you the stories of this ancient city. Let's hang out together on the Stoops of Atlantis. As much as this podcast talks about being real, you know, being outside on the stoop with real people, I've also been a computer game geek since their first incarnation. So I have been guilty of digital hermitism, if I may coin a phrase. It's a show that's quite simply a great way to say kids are people too. You may be young and not full grown. And you've got problems of your own. Kids are people too. As a kid watching that show Wonderama, remember with Bob McAllister, I would drool at the end of the show when they awarded a lucky kid the prize of Pong. You're watching the most exciting game you will ever see on your TV set. Telstar by Coleco with three different games. Telstar Tennis with digital scoring, variable speeds. Telstar Hockey. Each player controls a goalie plus a forward on the other side. Oops, a goal. And Telstar Singles Handball, a game you play yourself. Telstar Handball, Tennis, Hockey. All three at an exciting low price. For great family fun, hitch your TV to a Telstar. By Coleco. Pong. I mean, how science fiction this was to this East Harlem kid. It's a ball of light bouncing across your black and white TV screen while you and your opponent move the illuminated paddles of light, whacking it back and forth. And, you know, that was the epitome of simplistic. Today, of course, this is as antiquated as a rotary phone or funny sitcoms. But back then, this was science fiction come real. This was mind-blowing technology. This was magic. I asked for Pong once, but instead one Christmas I got an electronics experiment kit. My father studied and taught electronics in the Air Force, so like many of his interests, he passed them on to me. I had fun following the circuit instructions, clipping wires and little components to make radio receivers or primitive lie detectors or Morse code generators, but what was missing to me were the visuals. But it was too early for such advanced toys, but the digital winds of change were just starting to whisper. Soon the candy stores in my neighborhood had game machines other than pinball. Remember Seawolf? That came out in 1978. It was one of the first arcade games. It was that submarine video game where you look through a periscope and launch torpedoes at passing ships. Rex's Ice Store had this game, and the candy store on First Avenue. By today's standards, the graphics were laughable, but back then it was like the coolest thing ever. You had to time your shot perfectly to connect, and often your quarter just got you more frustrated. A 25 cent icy would have been money better spent. But there was something about these games. They were addictive. 
I remember Space Invaders. That was a real addiction for me. It was the first time I had able to leave your initials, you know, to log your high score. And there would be like 10 top scores at the top with the tags of neighborhood players. And it was like a drug. Because you could never get a high enough score. You had to go back and beat that last high. Sometimes you would, but usually you wouldn't. And then when you did, that became the high score to beat. And this went on and on, quarter after quarter, until you were left to beg on the streets for your next fix. And they just kept coming, all the new games. Jungle King, and Centipede, Pac-Man, Tempest, Battlezone, Luna Land, the Galaxian, Donkey Kong, Frogger, Defender, etc, etc. Let's face it, on those boring days, or when you needed a respite from the summer baked stoops, Playing these games were great. Before school, you would find me and my cousin Joe trying to outlast each other at Asteroids or Defender. And I confess, Joe was usually better at me than these at these games. But then came something else. It was the only thing that would lure me away from those stoops of Atlantis and into my room where I became a digital hermit. I was sitting in the cafeteria in my high school freshman year one morning and my new buddy Russ blew my mind. He said he had a computer in his house. You have a computer in your house? I mean, today it's like asking if you have a fridge, but back in 1981, the idea of having a computer in your home was, it was like having a genie in a bottle or a unicorn in your yard or a mermaid in your tub. I mean, it was exotic, sexy, and it made the imagination spin at the possibilities. At this time, I was taking my first computer class, and I ate it up. We learned basic programming language, and I aced it from day one. I just devoured it, and quickly grasped the more subtle ways to program. So when I finally got my own computer, I was in geek heaven. The first computer my dad bought for me was called the Timex Sinclair. It was a small plastic thing the size of like a paperback book with a membrane keyboard. And it had 1K of RAM. Yep, a single K. The graphics were, were pixels the size of postage stamps, black and white. But I dove in, and in minutes I had an animated black square moving across the screen. Yeah, it wasn't exactly Donkey Kong. Hell, it wasn't even Pong. But the early seeds of writing programs with moving images was planted. And it rolled back down. And it rolled back down. One day my dad came home with an Atari 2600. Any of you have one of those? Atari. Sorry, Miss Channing. You gonna slam dunk me, Atari? The Atari video computer system is 20 cartridges with 1,300 game variations you play on your own TV set. Don't watch television tonight. Play it. This was a life changer. We now had this digital, state-of-the-art babysitting anchor that would keep us off the streets, off the stoops, and brainlock joyously playing games whose graphics today are to the modern gamer as a horse and wagon would be to the owner of a Tesla. Oh, but it, it was fun and we didn't need our arms twisted to stay inside to play these games. My favorite was a game called Superman. Now, now for some perspective, I sit here writing this, jonesing for the new PlayStation VR 2 that I'm going to receive next week. We're talking about tech that could drop you into gorgeously rendered worlds. I mean, actually entering into a video game. This is the stuff I dreamed about when I was a kid. 
Superman, on the other hand, had these flat, almost abstract characters made out of about 12 blue and red pixels, gigantic blocks against a background of equally abstract blocks that were meant to be a city skyline. Yet somehow, controlling that blob of light's flight and actions was as exciting as actually flying through the skies in virtual reality. Yeah, and in 1979, to these 13-year-old eyes, this was science fiction come to life. The funny thing is, the art on the boxes for these games were a bit of false advertising. Kind of like the packaging for sea monkeys. The difference here was it really didn't matter that much if the fantasy artwork with detailed Dungeons and Dragons on the box had zilch to do with the blocky, bland, actual game graphics. See, our imaginations filled in where the bad graphics couldn't really deliver. A year or so later, my father walked in with yet another game machine. This one was called Intellivision. I'll try almost anything. So when Mattel Electronics asked me to compare their Intellivision games with Atari, I gave it a try. I compared Atari Baseball with Intellivision and found Intellivision played much more like real baseball. Then I compared Atari Football with Intellivision. Again, Intellivision played more like the real game. In my opinion, if you try them both, there's only one conclusion you can come to. In television, from Mattel Electronics. And the tech had already advanced. These graphics were smoother. I remember playing the hockey game, and when my little player slipped, he slid across the ice with none of the jumpiness of the Atari game characters. The football players ran with this seamless animation. This was amazing. Actually, it was utter crap when you look at it now. But time is all about perspective. You only know what you know, and what's currently available. So I grew out of the Timex Sinclair in about a week. I had maxed out its little single K of RAM. So next up was a little miracle machine called the VIC-20. It had an entire 8K of RAM to work with. And now I could write longer programs in BASIC and create little attempts at video games of my own making. It was a new electronic era. With Devo playing in my ears, I was learning. Dumb little games, but I was learning. One day, from morning until after dinner, I wrote a Dungeons and Dragons type game on the VIC-20. I created it from scratch, all the little game characters, created a way to generate random mazes for different levels, and after lines and lines of code and debugging, I was ready to test play it. The computer crashed. In a controlled panic, I tried to reload it from the floppy disk. Nope, the disk was damaged. My entire day's work was gone. So what did I do? Cry? Throw the computer in the garbage and scream? Well, I pondered those options. But nope, I sat down and I recreated the entire thing. Every little character, every maze, every line of code. And I'm not sure what time I finished, but what I did, I saved it on five separate floppies and also printed out all the code. I was tired, brain fried, and damn proud. As for the game, it sucked. So I grew out of the VIC-20 pretty fast, but next up was a computer where I excelled and where I had a lot of years of use. It was the Commodore 64. Commodore 64 lets you play hundreds more games than any video machine, plus draw, program, even do music. I'm more alive than I ever before, and my friends are knocking down my door. The 
Now this baby had 64K of RAM. Well, actually 38 after the operating system hogged up 26K. It also had this new sound chip called SID. So the sound effects and music options were much better. And there was these things called sprites. Now sprites were like magic. They were what made games pop and spark and look more professional. Rather than creating game characters with tiny 8x8 pixel blocks using the character generators, sprites were larger and could glide smoothly across the screen and over other sprites. And you could even trigger collisions and make them transform. I mean, it was all cool and technical and it pushed my brain to learn programming tricks. And I even learned a more advanced language like assembly so I could speed things up beyond the slowpoke basic code. I was becoming a hermit in my room staring at the screen. But there was that siren call of a more primal desire. girls in the hood would get me from my cave of my own computer room. Sad thing was shyness doesn't affect programming, but it did when it came to trying to interface with my crushes. There were actually days when I was happy at my computer when a knock would come to my door. It was my crush and her friends wanting me to come out and hang. Well, of course I did, but I was so awkward with my moves and feared rejection, I felt I was sort of wasting my time going out. Or maybe I was just safer inside for my teenage Tiffany crystal heart. If I only realized, she was just as shy and awkward around me, and a fellow geek. One day my senior year, Mr. Krauss, my AP English teacher, and favorite teacher of all time, I've mentioned him in the past, asked me what I was going to major in in college. Well, all this playing around with computers, and my dad who was an electronic whiz, I jumped into electronic engineering. But I was a writer, a creator. It was the stories of the video games that really attracted me at its core. Mr. Krauss looked at me, and he said, you're a great writer, why are you going into computers? And he was right. I hated electrical engineering and I switched to computer science major. And it's the degree I did get, but I fell behind the industry in terms of my programming ability and shifted my focus back to writing, to storytelling, to filmmaking. Was it a mistake? Well, my first job out of college was in a brand new computer company with just two owners and a secretary. And it could have been a great opportunity had I focused on computers, but I didn't. I started a film company with my buddy and cousin and I got fired. So over the years, I continued to play computer games with a little less passion than in my youth. I continued using computers you know, for writing or film editing, computer animation, and to produce podcasts. Then virtual reality came along and sucked me in big time into the matrix of computer gaming again. But the reality of the world is where the real joys and pains reside. And even now, there is something special about visiting and revisiting the ghosts, the real ghosts, that haunt the real stoops of Atlantis.
Thanks for listening in to the Stoops of Atlantis with Mikey D. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to rate it on whatever app you're using. And you could also leave a message at the Facebook page or contact me at stoopsmail at yahoo.com. Until next time. Mm-hmm.